The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL podcast. I'm Pim Fox along with my co host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at Bloomberg.com. It is my pleasure to bring in former Senator Joe Lieberman. Uh, you have founded or co- you're the co-chairman of a nonpartisan advocacy group uh, called No Labels that's meeting um, to sort of figure out how to chart a center political new way forward. Can you tell us a little bit about how this came about? Sure, Ken, and, and uh, thanks for having me on. We're holding a, a big conference. We're calling it a summit. We actually called it 1787 after the year of the Constitutional Convention to, to remind everybody that the people at the Constitutional Convention had tremendous disagreements. They almost broke up three or four times. But they, they came to the center and negotiated a compromise in the national interest, uh, uh, and therefore we have our country. We haven't, um, uh, our, our leaders and representatives in Washington haven't been doing that for too long, and therefore a lot of our problems have gone unsolved and a lot of opportunities not seized to make life better. And a lot of that expressed itself in the uh, election where uh, Donald Trump was elected really, in my opinion, as a change candidate uh, against the status quo and maybe somebody who, based on his business background, could could make things work. And so today, uh, no labels means put aside your label, a Democrat, Republican, liberal, conservative. We're all Americans. Let's work together to get something done for the country. We're announcing today uh, 50 members of Congress, pretty evenly divided between Republicans and Democrats who have signed on to working together across party lines. And we're also um, building a political action committee to support people in Congress who stand up to their party leadership or interest groups and, and vote in a way that they think is best for their constituents or their country. We, we think the election of Donald Trump really shakes up the system in a way. I didn't support him, but I, I would tell you it shakes up the system in a way that gives us an opportunity to help him do what what we think he wants to do. Well, and, and speaking about that election. Senator Lieberman, Lieberman, do you think that these first steps are sort of the beginnings of a new political party? That's not where that's a great, that's a great question. A few people here have raised the question and our feeling Governor Huntsman of Utah, the former governor, Republican, and I have our co-chairs. That's not our, our intention. Our intention really is to make the two-party system work better like it has for a lot of our history. And it always does when the center-right and the center-left gets together. But I'll tell you, if something like this doesn't work to, to help the government uh, produce for the American people, I think there will be a third party before the next presidential election, and it'll be uh, a contender. It'll be a strong party. 
Senator Lieberman, I wonder if you could point to some specific goals you have. I note, for example, that No Labels has called for a bipartisan seating at the State of the Union address. I mean, is that the kind of stuff that you think people really want you to come together on? Well, that's really small process things. Uh, and it can't hurt, and that's happened uh, over over the years. But the truth is, our, our, we, we, we are really about process, but we, for the first time, put out a, what we call a national strategic agenda. And we try to uh, form uh, four big goals for the country and uh, uh, state them in a way that, that most Republicans and Democrats could at least agree on the goal. And then you start to negotiate. So what are the goals? 25 million new jobs in 10 years. Uh, actually, that's a goal that President-elect Trump has already embraced. Second, yeah, uh, but is that? But that's never not a goal, right? I mean, yeah. you never come out and hear people so, say, "Oh no, we don't want to create jobs." So, no, what is different about I, your approach I, than the approach I, that it, other presidents and the current president-elect have stated? Okay, fair question. And and here's what we're saying: with these four goals, you get, when you, when you're not doing anything, when your business is failing or, or whatever. Uh, first thing you try to do is decide where do we want to go. We set goals. And in the political process, if you can get people to buy into the goals, then you can sit down and negotiate uh, how you're going to achieve as much of those goals as you possibly can. And, and that's why we started there. Incidentally, uh, we invited all the presidential candidates to a convention we held in New Hampshire last year. Donald Trump was one of eight to address us at that time. There were over 20. Uh, running, and he accepted our, he signed our pledge to go for one of these goals. And and what it means is to convene a process of leaders, hopefully, in both parties in Congress to begin to negotiate. It, one of the problems in Washington is too many people in Congress today or in the White House have said, I I'm only going to uh, accept this if it's exactly the way I want it, okay. uh, if it's 100% of what I want. And when you do that, uh, you usually end up with zero percent, and of course, it's the country that suffers. Senator Lieberman, do you think that it was a mistake for the Democrats to reelect or re-select um, Nancy Pelosi as the uh, as the minority leader of the United States House of Representatives again? Well, and uh, that's up to the House Democrats. I, I know I don't I don't think it's really I, I wouldn't say it's a mistake. Uh, I think the question is now, what do the House Democrats do and what do the House Republicans do? And look, I've talked to members of Congress of, of both political parties since the election, and there are voices in each caucus that are, are all too familiar. Some Democrats are saying we must go into resistance. We must oppose everything that President Trump asked for. And then some Republicans are saying let's do what Obama did at the beginning of his term. Let's just ram it down uh, the Democrats' throats. We've got uh, we've got majorities in both houses. Well, if that if those voices dominate, then really nothing's going to get done. And and uh, President Trump will not have the record. I think he wants to have, and the country will not have the help that it voted for uh, in the last election. So really, it depends on what leaders Pelosi, Ryan, McConnell, and Schumer uh, do. Uh, and um, that's what we want to help them do, which is the right thing. I wonder if you could speak to the issue of uh, combining uh, the uh, work that the Department of Defense does along with the Veterans Administration. I know that's one of your goals, of combining records. Why do you want to do that? Oh, well, outside of our uh, playbook, uh, let me just say about the playbook that we, we um, 
combined, uh, we, we actually tested a lot of ideas. Some of them are big, some of them are kind of middle size or small, but they each com command a, a majority support from the American people. And that was one. It's yeah, but what issue. about the Congress? Do you think they're going to pass this? Well, uh, hopefully, uh, uh, you know, because it, to us it makes sense that it saves money and it probably and it serves uh, both the active duty military and the uh, veterans better. It avoids the sort of uh, spending twice for the same kind of record keeping. I want to thank you very much, uh, former U.S. Senator, Democrat, and Independent from Connecticut, former Vice Presidential Candidate Joe Lieberman. He is the co-chairman of No Labels. All right, we're going to learn more about the world of Wall Street analysts. We have Lan Ann Nguyen, our Bloomberg FX reporter, joining us now. Lan Ann, thanks very much for coming in. Uh, 17 cat vines that will slay you every time. No, that may not be the headline of a Bank of America Merrill Lynch report, but it might be one day. Well, they haven't stooped quite that far yet, Pim, but uh, what analysts are trying to do here is really trying to hook readers. They're trying to make bold, short calls in uh, contrarian reports. So I spoke to David Wu from Bank of America, and uh, he's very feisty, as you know, um, but I-, I think the bank is trying to spread this ethos across all of its analysts. Have some guts. If you have an interesting call, you know, go all the way. Don't play it safe and don't reel it back to be part of the consensus. Okay, so if they haven't gone as low as 17 cat five that will slay you every time. How low have they gone? <laughs> I don't know if it's low, but they've done what we in the news business do. They've, you know, focused on shorter reports, tighter uh, stories and, um, you know, tighter thematic pieces and better headlines, I think. But, so why now? Why is there this push to sort of be more consumer friendly? Well, if, uh, you know, they're listening to what happened after the financial crisis, a lot of people have lost their jobs. There are fewer people out there churning out these 20-page, you know, 30-page reports. So they really got to be smarter with their time, uh, get people reading their reports, and build a following uh, by being amusing, being interesting, and lighthearted, in addition to obviously being smart. For your story, you spoke with the global research head of Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, Candace Browning. What did she say? She was interesting. She said, basically, I I want my people to be bold. I want them to talk about what's not already priced in the market. I want them to be out of consensus, not just, you know, going against consensus for the sake of it, but really um, looking to see what the next move in the market is going to be, because everything that's in the market and in the price right now is already priced in. So um, she was pretty tough about that. She said, make a big call you know, stand out from the herd uh, or else you won't stick around. And catchy well, titles, right? I mean, yeah. for example, one report, I guess it was published, what, to, uh, last year, last November, uh, called The Great Divorce, mm-hmm. right? This was uh, written by uh, Mr. Wu. Yes. Well, so my question is, how do these analysts make money for the banks? And how much of that is the issue here? So right now, they make money for the bank by being part of an add-on service of perks, right? So if you and I do a deal uh, and Bank of America is your bank, then probably they'll throw research in on the side without a separate fee. It's just part of the, the, the cost of being a client. But eventually, banks may need to, st- especially in Europe, will will need to start charging a fee either directly or as part of a commission uh, for research. So it means that the researchers have to really jostle to stand out because eventually you may have to put a price tag on each research report. So that's that's really the issue here is that increasingly there has to be justification 
for this research and its value, and there has to be a loyal following. Otherwise, it could very well get cut. Right. Precisely. It's the quality of the ideas, but it's also the following of the analysts and the ability of the analysts to engage the readers, which sometimes means they have to put in some song lyrics or use Bob Dylan as a you know a way to hook readers. Obviously, the analysis has to be good as well, but it doesn't hurt to you know throw in a couple of fun touches. So does this mean, for example, that we're going to hear Kit Jukes of Societe Generale, and he's been a guest on Bloomberg uh, for a variety of uh, uh, subjects. Uh, uh, does that mean he's going to start to sing those Bob Dylan lyrics as well as Latin proverbs as he offers them in his notes to clients? I, I don't know if he'll sing them in audio form, but he's certainly uh, one person that if you want to model uh, analyst research with flair, uh, definitely look at Kit Jukes. I was just looking right now. Um, his current report from today compares the U.S. dollar to the myth of Icarus. So, you know, he's very literary in addition to being pretty musical as well. Um, so going forward, is there a particular uh, area or a particular subject of analysis that lends itself to lyrics and is it is it FX or is it across all disciplines? I think it's across all disciplines. I think if you're writing about financial markets, which can be very technical, uh, you need to throw a little spice in there. It doesn't hurt in any discipline to write with a flair and entertainment in addition to you know, good analysis and smart comments. Lenan Nguyen, thank you so much for joining us. Lenan Nguyen, uh, FX reporter here at Bloomberg News. A really fascinating story about how the culture is changing, not just among uh, mainstream media, but also on Wall Street. I want to bring in my colleague, my Bloomberg Gadfly uh, fellow columnist, Marcus Ashworth. He is in London covering uh, European Marcus, uh, markets. And Marcus, thank you so much for being with us. Hello. Uh, hi. You know, I've got to say, I, I, I'm sort of surprised at the lack of a market reaction to the Italian referendum. Yes, this has been sort of expected. Yes, people are saying it's not as big of an issue as Brexit or the U.S. presidential vote. But even still... I think you might find that's because the uh, European Central Bank have, uh, have learnt their lessons and they know how to control markets uh, ever better. So I think certainly there was uh, the central banks are in very early um, supporting the uh, bond market. And uh, wait, wait, wait! You're saying that actually they were buying that that the European Central Bank was out there buying actively buying both the euro as well as uh, as well as potentially government bonds. Uh, I don't. Bags. I don't know on the currency. I, I would doubt that on the currency. Okay. But, um, certainly Italian bank debt? <clears throat> no, no, no. They, they, mm. they would be buying uh, the Italian government bonds, um, and that would be something which is uh, reasonably widely um, expected. Uh, they had flagged it up beforehand, and uh, though I cannot confirm for sure, it seems all likelihood would point to that, and the price action would would suggest that uh, no one's prepared to. Uh, uh, use the expression fight the Fed, but it's the same sort of story here. The European Central Bank have made it very clear that on a negative reaction they would be in supporting, they're perfectly entitled to. It's all part of their uh, uh, PSPP, Public Sector Purchasing Program. And uh, we may find out on Thursday that they uh, could even increase um, or tweak uh, the purchasing of uh, Italian bonds pro rata to all the other bonds and indeed extend QE as well. So this is this was to be expected. Um, I, even so, though, I, I agree with you in, in the sense that everyone had expecting a, a, a wilder reaction. And it really wasn't until the states came in when 
they wanted to sell bonds off anyway, that, that, that there's been a little bit more uh, price action to the downside. Well, and, and sort of um, to your point, yes, Italian government debt could be purchased by the European Central Bank, but I'm looking at Montopashi uh, bonds, and they dropped, yes, but they dropped by less than three cents uh, on the dollar, which was surprising. I mean, you know, it was not a huge move, in other words. Um, and there was all this talk about an Italian banking crisis leading up to this vote. Um, were people just wrong, or is there still potentially more uh, risk here than people are pricing in? Um, yeah, the the liquidity or illiquidity on Monte Apache is uh, to, to be seen to be believed. I mean, it's a completely controlled market. There's just about a buy, bond buyback, so anyone who wished to get out had their chance. Now it's a very carefully controlled market um, because they're about to do a, a major stock recapitalization. So um, it's impressive, but I think the, the 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 lead managers on on the equity deal will be keeping a very careful eye on on, on prices of Monte Apache and. The reality is, is that uh, if the authorities or, or, or the lead managers want to come in and buy a, a, a chunk of these bonds, it would move the market sharply upwards. So that there's less active uh, short sellers in these types of things. It's very hard to sort of get liquidity on these types of results. Marcus, I wonder if you could comment on the reaction from other European governments and markets to the Italian vote. Yeah, I think that's it's all round. It's it's we've taken some of the. Um, political risk out, because even though it was the worst result expected, in some senses, um, it would be very carefully uh, controlled, both by the ECB beforehand, and I think, um, you know, Italy's been here before with technocratic governments. Uh, I mean, Renzi came in, and, and not necessarily on, on a full mandate anyway, so in that context... The last, I think that the last popularly elected prime minister <laughs> in Italy was Silvio Berlusconi back in 2008. They have not had a popularly elected government for eight years. Indeed. So, um, in that sense, we, we have seen this movie before. Um, the finance minister probably, or someone, uh, either that or the culture minister, or, or possibly one of the Senate leaders will, will come in. So, um, you know, it's not going to be any rash decisions made. The, the president is, uh, has the uh, electoral ability to control when elections uh, are called to a degree. Um, and I think that um, they will try every, every way they possibly can. The one thing is a surprise, I suppose, is the size of, of, of the vote, that it's, it's quite clear that Renzi is going to step down permanently, uh, whereas it had been expected he might be sort of called back a bit like James Brown to, to come back to the stage, but it doesn't look like that. He, he, his career is probably over for now. Yeah, Marcus, your point about the liquidity in Monte uh bonds is an important one. And just more broadly, looking at the market, I mean, is there a particular gauge that you are looking at to indicate uh, truly the level of risk or so that you think of as the most accurate reflection of, uh, of the risk out there? Honestly, probably the best thing to look at in this sense because the bond market is so illiquid and so tightly controlled and carefully is the equity price because that's what's uh, going to be raised uh, well, five times. Well, so, But not just with Monte Apache, but in general, I was looking at Italian financial stocks this morning and they were down, but not by that much. They're still above uh, the average since the beginning of July. So it doesn't seem to be that people are pricing in any, any kind of banking crisis well, I resulting think they are. from the... They are, but they're just doing it in a different way because uh, worst case scenario, um, Italy can't, can't bail itself out um, as it's trying to without state aid via its Atalante uh, bailout fund and, and via this um, non-public sector bailout of Monte Depache, which will involve a five times equity recap 
potentially, you know, was supposed to be announced uh, from today. Um, the only other way out is, is, is a major state bailout. I mean, Spain had a sort of 40 billion handout from the EU, and obviously that's what Renzi was trying to avoid. But the, you know, the reality, things have got so bad down here that um, if, if they weren't able to make it a private sector um, bailout, then there would be a bail-in of junior bondholders and there would be a, 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 some form of state EU-led um, all-round package for um, uh, indeed for um, for the whole banking sector, and it wouldn't just be Monte de Pasch, it would be a much wider thing. But, you know, Unicredit got a result this morning. It, it sold its Pioneer Asset Management unit to um, a very large uh, French uh, concern, Amundi, which manages over a trillion euros. So in that sense, that's 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 a progress there. Interesting timing, they're announcing it there. So th- th- I think there's every chance still that this deal is going to get away. It just needs to convince a, a cornerstone equity investor behind Monte de Pasci, that builds confidence. They then have to sell less of the uh, equity than they were, uh, were thinking. Everything trips uh, favorably. Uh, if a technocratic government comes in um, and, and seems to sort of level the playing field, then we can move on from this. But it's a very carefully, very managed thing. And, and the, you know, selling short uh, Monte de Pasci bonds is, is not really going to get you very far. Because one, you can't right. borrow them. And two, that they've already had the, the, the major um, debt to equity switch. So... Got it. All right. Thanks very much. Marcus Ashworth is a Gadfly columnist for Bloomberg News covering European markets. And, you know, Lisa, I was looking at the Italian government debt, public debt, 130 percent of GDP. My favorite quote of the day. After Brexit, it took three days for markets to shake it off. With Trump, three hours. With Italy, three minutes. This is Bloomberg. Well, imagine that uh, Italian voters go to the polls and they vote no on a referendum to reform the way their government works. You'd think that the euro would fall. Not so. Euro right now higher by about a half a percent versus the dollar at 107. Also, the dollar weakening against the British pound at 127. Let's find out more from Mark Chandler. He is Global Head of Currency Strategy at Brown Brothers Harriman. All right, Mark Chandler, what's the answer? Why is the euro rallying. Well, two reasons, Tim. One, I think, is that this uh, referendum results was largely expected. All the polls that came out beforehand suggested that the referendum was going to be rejected, and it was rejected uh, by about basically a 60 to 40 vote. What this doesn't mean, though, and this is why I think the euro is able to rally, is that it does not mean that this is a victory for the anti-establishment or anti-elite forces. In Italy, the former prime minister, Monti, who is also an EU commissioner, came out against the referendum. So did members of Renzi's own political party. And the Economist magazine, which is no liberal, uh, no like left-wing kind of magazine, they also came out against the referendum. And so I think that the, uh, the situation is, this is Italy. I mean, we're talking about a country that's had something like 63 or 64 governments since the end of World War II. This is not about populism and nationalism. This is about idiosyncratic Italian things. And so Italian bonds have suffered. Italian stocks have suffered. But after that knee-jerk reaction, the euro really hasn't.
Yeah, the the German finance minister had a great quote, uh, basically saying, "Yeah, this is Italy. They know they're they're used to this type of thing. They'll work it out." Um, but there still is a lot of talk about how this does empower sort of anti-European Union mentality, uh, and we certainly have more votes coming, uh, not least of which is the is the French vote. I mean, do you think that people will get concerned in the upcoming months, or more concerned anyway, about the breakup of of the eurozone? I think, you know, on Wall Street, Lisa, and I think in many places in London, people have been skeptical about the monetary union since the get-go. Uh, I was one of those few people who didn't think Greece was going to drop out either time, either in 2010 or a couple of years ago. I think that people will get nervous. And I think, again, like, like we saw with this past weekend, though, uh, they're focused on the wrong things. I thought that the Austria election for president, where the far-right candidate had had run, done very well in the earlier run, runoff in, in the spring. I thought that was going to be more important than the Italian election as far as those concerns about the EMU goes. Next year, I think you're right, a lot of people at least are talking about the French election, how well Le Pen is running in the polls. But I want to tell you that before we even get to the French election, there'll be even a scarier election, and that is in the Netherlands, where the far-right party is running ahead. In France, it, it seems to me that the other parties, whether it's the Republican, that's the center-right party or the socialists, will end up in the second round to do anything to stop Le Pen from winning. You don't have that same uh, same history in the Netherlands. So I'd be more worried about the Netherlands at this point than I am about France or Germany, for that matter. Mark, can I just press you a little bit about your uh, description of the reason why the euro is rallying against the dollar? I mean, you say that this was a predicted result. Well, okay, if it was predicted, then why is the euro rallying? Why are people buying euros, selling dollars, when you just said, first of all, it was predicted, and second of all, you say that, well, it's Italy, it's not a big deal because they're used to changing governments, and you have former prime ministers also coming out in favor of a no vote. What does that mean? Why, why is that connected to the euro then? Yep, so I think that what happened is this. I think, Pim, that the, uh, the euro had been on a, on a rally, had been selling off sharply since the election. But most recently, the new good news in the U.S., which would be the jobs data, but also the whole slew of data that we've had suggesting that the U.S. economy didn't only grow well above trend in Q3, but it's headed for another quarter of above trend growth. It stopped having an effect on the dollar. Why? And I think that I, I, think I mean, I mean, you have that, but then also have rising interest rates in the United States. If you buy a 10-year U.S. government versus a 10-year Italian, uh, you're going to be making more money. Why wouldn't you want dollars instead of euros? Well, I think that most people do still, but I think that in the short run, we've got to talk about the different market segments, and I think that the short-term market participants are beginning to take profits on what turned out to be a very large move in the euro, coming down from like 112, 113. We got down to 105 yesterday, which is a, or earlier today, which is a new 20-month low. Right. So yes, people have been selling the euro, but now I think that if the market... So, some kind of rebound or some kind of uh, reaction to that. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? 
which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.